Welcome to the Studying the Bible podcast, where every Thursday, pastors Dylan Dodson and Brian Androsian study a book of the Bible verse by verse to see what is being communicated and how we can use it to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We pray that today's podcast can help you grow just a little bit closer to Christ. Welcome back to our online Bible study through the book of Esther. In this session, session nine, we're getting close to the end of the book. We'll look at Esther chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. Now, where we left off last time in Esther chapter 8 is that Mordecai has been elevated to essentially second in the kingdom. Uh, Esther has been honored and given m- much of Haman's estate because the Haman, the Agagite who meant to kill the Jews and ma- essentially set up legal genocide, has been killed. And so there's much celebration in the streets, but we still have a problem. The, the king's original decree that the slaughter of the Jews to, was to take place still has to take place. But then his also decree on top of that, that the Jews could defend themselves uh, on that day, has also been written. And so now we're going to see what actually happens on the day that was appointed for the slaughter of the Jews, but now they can defend themselves. And so here's how it gets resolved. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. So again, the day that Haman had originally chose for the destruction of the Jews had come, but now that Jews have had the upper hand, not just because they are legally now allowed to defend themselves, but because of Queen Esther being revealed as a Jew, Mordecai, who is a Jew, being honored, people are like, well, we should probably be on their side. Uh, So bad things don't happen to us, and so their team, their strength is quite big. And so here's what happens, verse 2. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai had exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So now, the day appointed for destruction, the Jews are prepared, and many, not just the Jews, but many in the Persian Empire, and the officials were now on their side, and were going to help them. Uh, Again, likely this is partially politically motivated. They wanted to be on Mordecai's good side. After all, he's the second in the kingdom. And so by helping defend the Jews, it'll keep them in good favor by telling the people that followed them and honored them to make sure that you look out for them. Now, this is just really quite fascinating uh, story of the human condition, right? So just a couple chapters ago, many people were willing to kill and to steal and to destroy the Jews, take their possessions. But because of the political alliances that have changed, now that Haman has been killed and a Jew has been elevated, they go from wanting to kill the Jews to wanting to defend them. I think that's interesting. We'll make note of that as we end our session. Uh, But before then, let's keep reading. So here's what happens, verse 5. It says, the Jews put, out all, put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. So what's happening here is a reversal of Haman's original edict, where now, and this is now becoming the climax of the narrative so far, right? So what you see happening here is that you have people in a foreign land, in exile, under the rule of Persia, who could never have survived, now have the grace of God who has provided for them, and now for those that are coming to attack them, now the Jews, that God's people, have the upper hand. 
right? Originally, everyone could come and attack them, and there's nothing they could do. Now, for those that are coming to attack them, they not only withstand, but they have the upper hand because so many are coming to their defense, right? Again, at this point, the majority of people we see happening here have refused to attack the Jews. The question is, why would some still do so, right? If the Jews have all the power, uh, or sorry, if Mordecai is Jewish, the queen is Jewish, uh, if it seems to be that Mordecai is raised, uh, rising in authority and power, why would you go against somebody who has so much authority in the kingdom? You know, the text doesn't say, but it could have been mercenaries uh, who are still uh, loyal to Haman. Um, it could have been people who still had something to gain by trying to kill some of the Jewish people and, and some of their losses. And so for whatever reason, there were still a contingent of people who set out to just try to, to destroy the Jews in their area. But of course, fewer people have attacked them now than would have if the king had not re, uh, replaced Haman's edict or over uh, added another edict to Haman's edict saying the Jews could defend themselves. But still, some people still attacked them. And so it says this in verse 6, In the fortress of Susa, which was the king... You know, the, the Winter Palace is essentially one of the capitals of Persia. The Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshanathdala, Dalphon, Aspath, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parsmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. Now, just a side note, when you're reading the Bible in a public setting and you come across a lot of names that you're not quite sure how to pronounce, if you read it with authority and you read it quickly, people think that it was correct. I have no idea how correct those pronunciations were. But here's what's happening here. In the capital of Susa, it says 500 men were killed, which would have been a very small percentage of the population in a capital city, which is showing that what the author of Esther is likely showing here is that most people now are in support of the Jews. Instead of having thousands and thousands and maybe tens of thousands, depending on how many Jews were in that surrounding area, would have died, now you had 500 people, enemies of the Jews, who were killed instead. Of course, it includes the ten sons of Haman, right, emphasizing the inability of Haman's, descendant to take, Haman's descendants to take some revenge later that if his family was wiped out and, and they're wanting to take revenge on Mordecai and the Jews, they could no longer do it uh, if the family no longer existed. Now, this also emphasizes how Mordecai and Esther were faithful in doing what Saul failed to do. If you remember a few sessions back, uh, originally when, uh, when Saul was the first king of Israel, God had commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites for reasons why Again, we won't get it all into it like we did a few sessions ago, but the Amalekites were the first people to attack the Israelites when they were exiting out of Egypt. And so a few sessions ago, we talked about why that's significant and why trying to wipe out God's people matters, because if you wipe out the Israelites, well, then the God, Jesus, the Messiah, would never have come. And so when they got into the Promised Land, God told them to wipe out the Amalekites. And what happens was King Saul doesn't fully do that. He actually spares the king of Amalekites, the Amalekites, which was King Agag at the time, and spared some of those people. Of course, Haman is an Agagite from the line of King Agag. And so now, because Saul was not doing what God asked him to do, the Agagites and or the Amalekites again, or Agagites slash the Amalekites again, are now trying to wipe out the Jewish people. But Mordecai and Esther stopped it, and they did take out the quote-unquote ruler of the Agagites, Haman himself. So again, Esther and Mordecai do what Saul failed to do, and now the Amalekites cannot destroy God's people. 
Now, it also mentions here that they didn't take any plunder. They didn't seize any money or possessions, which is significant as they were lawfully allowed to do it in reversal of Haman's edict. So according to the new edict of the king, they could have taken the plunder, the resources, uh, the money from those that attacked them that yet they killed, but they didn't, right? Emphasizing here, they were simply defending their right to live, again, in vast contrast to Haman, who wanted to kill the Jews for his own personal gain and for what he could get from it. So they're successful, and then it says this in verse 11, on that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Now, this is interesting, right? The king seems quite indifferent to the results of 500 people dying in his own capital city, um, because we know, right, if 500 people were killed in Susa alone, the total number in the kingdom, and this is what he's inquiring of Esther, would have also been much higher, because it would have to include all places in the kingdom. Yet again, it's still way lower than if Haman's edict was alone in effect. A lot more people would have died. And so the king asked Esther, essentially, if there's any other request she has on the matter. Again, he has a lot of anger toward Haman and what he's done. And so now that he has seen that the Jews were successful in defending themselves, he asks her if there's anything else she would want. But then something interesting happens. Verse 13, it says this. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons, uh, sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done, so a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. Now this, again, is another thing that becomes difficult when reading and studying and trying to understand the book of Esther. See, the king comes to Esther and asks if there's anything else that she wants, and Esther here, she asks for an additional day to continue to fight. And she also asks to display his Haman's sons on the gallow, again, as a public shaming to Haman and his family. Now, as a side note, that may seem barbaric to us, but uh, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that that was common practice in that day of hanging people on the gallows. But the bigger question for us is this. Why does Haman, or sorry, why does Esther do this? Why, why does she ask the king for an additional day? Why, does it, why isn't she just fine with the edict that the king wrote on behalf of Mordecai and Esther for the Jews to defend themselves, right? Because again, this is now above and beyond Haman's original edict because she wants a second day. And so this is difficult, right? Because throughout the book of Esther, she has be- the book of Esther began as Esther herself was introduced as a subservient, as someone who was you know, not in control of her destiny, that she, she was chosen, she had to go uh, sleep with the king. Now, she is eventually chosen as queen, but she's kind of pr- portrayed as someone with great courage and really humble character. But yet now, it seems that she is using her position to get the king to do what she wants to do. And so again, what's hard here is the author, as always, doesn't tell us why she wants to do this, and makes also no attempt to vindicate her request, so that perhaps there is really good reasoning and motivation for asking a second day, but we're not told why. But at the same time, the author doesn't kind of give us reasons to say, hey, this is why this is a good idea. We're, We're left to wonder, was there a good reason for this, or were her motives not so good? Maybe there was, but at the same time, it, it, you can't help but feel it's a little excessive and harsh, 
given no other information, right? It seems difficult. How, how are we supposed to wrestle with this? And again, this is the difficulty of Esther. We're not told why things happen, but we're left wondering why an additional day. But then it says this in verse 16, it says, the rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended, and have defended themselves and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. Now, 75,000, to be clear, is a, is a lot. Um, now, it could be an accurate number, or it's a, it's a little Hebrew thing here. Uh, the word translated thousands, as we have 75,000, could refer to uh, families and clans, so it could be saying there were 75 families or clans or tribes, um, which, again, would have made the total number a lot less than 75,000, but still significant. And regardless, regardless of what the actual number was, um, the point the author is making is that this was a great victory for God's people. Right? They defended themselves. Many who sought to kill them themselves received the judgment of God. And then it says this, verse 17, through the end of the passage we're reading today. It says, They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month, again, per Esther's request, and they rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. And this explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Now, what you're describing here is the festival of Purim, which we'll see more in our last session, uh, the next session, the last session of Book of Esther, but it's the festival of Purim, which is, again, is established because of these events and of these two days where the Jews were vindicated by God. Now, again, that being said, this book is really encouraging for us. I know there's a lot of questions, uh, there is a lot of death, but at the end of the day, God vindicates this people. And so I think there's a few things worth pointing out, right? One of the things, again, we've, we've said throughout, is that God is never mentioned in this book, right? We're never told, not only, we're never told God explicitly is mentioned. Also, we were never told that the Spirit of God rested on Mordecai or Esther, as you see in various other Old Testament uh, uh, stories or examples where God raises up a leader and his spirit rests on them to help guide them. That's not mentioned here. Also, no miracles have occurred to encourage God's people to trust him. Now, you could say, you know, the fact that they survived and and uh, weren't killed was, was great, but it wasn't necessarily a miracle because, again, the numbers were then on the, were on the Jews' favor by the time that this day actually occurred. So there was no sign or say, hey, trust me, I will provide. None of those things happen. Yet, what we see very clearly is that God was faithful. Or put another way, uh, this is the type of book that I would say is extremely helpful and encouraging to modern readers because we are living in these type of times, right? We don't necessarily have <laughs> a biblical prophet around. Uh, sometimes we can wonder where God is or what God is doing. We don't always, very often, or if ever, see miraculous, you know, these miraculous signs, these crazy things that really show us this is exactly what God wants you to do. But yet we have to trust. Again, I love what Karen Job says in her uh, commentary in the book of Esther on this passage and the book of the whole. She puts it this way. She says, in other words, the book of Esther shows how God fulfilled his covenant promise through the providence instead of or through providence instead of miraculous intervention. Divine providence means that God governs all creatures and actions and circumstances through the normal, ordinary course of human life. 
without the intervention of the supernatural. In other words, he doesn't have to do what we would consider supernatural things to be in control and to have providence. The biblical author's view in this book uh, that the deliverance was a fait accompli on the basis of of the ancient decree given to Moses reflects deep confidence in God's ability to do exactly what he says, regardless of how he chooses to do it. Now, if you're not sure what fait accompli means, here's what what it means, and here's what Karen Jobs is saying. Fait accompli is this. It's a thing that has already happened or been decided before those affected hear about it. It's essentially a done deal. Right? And so uh, the author here talking about the promises of God through Abraham, who said he's going to keep his people even when they're unfaithful to him. And so even Mordecai even hints at this, saying, We're not sure how God's going to do it when he tells Esther that she needs to confront the king, but we are going to be redeemed. It's fait accompli. It's going to happen. We are going to be saved, even if we're not sure how it's going to be accomplished. And so Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, I want to end with maybe four quick reflections. Number one, here's the first thing. What we see happening here is that people, particularly in our day, that people can follow Jesus or power, but they can't follow both, right? Again, I'm reminded of how quickly the political alliances of the people sway to, we're going to get the Jews and get their resources and take advantage of them, to now that we realize that there are certain Jewish people in power, we're just going to do whatever they want to do. We're going to defend them so that we can look good ourselves. So it's a reminder to us. We can be honest, we can follow God, be faithful to Him, or we can chase power but we very, very very often can't do both, because if we're after power and comfort and our own selfish ends, we're going to be swayed. We're not going to necessarily do the things that honor God, but if we're following Jesus and want to be faithful to Him, it may mean we have less power, less influence, less authority, but we are being faithful. And so very, what we see happening here, again, in our modern context, is that people can follow Jesus, or they can follow power, but they can't follow both, and He's inviting us to follow Him. Second thing we, we see happening here is that faithfulness leads to freedom and not restriction. You know, so often we think the commands of God, honoring God, uh, doing things that might bring honor to Him and might love other people is restrictive, it's not fun, it's holding us back. And yeah, what we see, particularly in the book of Proverbs, it's a book all about not just that we receive the promises of God in the life to come, but His wisdom has blessing for us in this life as well. And so being faithful leads to life. Even if it's hard in the moment, even if we have to say no to certain desires we want in the moment, His wisdom, His love, His grace ultimately leads to freedom. So the Jews here, they before, uh, before the queen went to before the king to ask to reverse the edict, you know, they prayed, they fasted, they did things to try to ask God to move, and at the end, it actually resulted in their freedom. So whatever you might be experiencing or, or going through right now, being faithful can sometimes be really hard. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God loves us. He created us. He knows what good, is good for us. And so he's asking us to do certain things, not to check a box, not to make him feel better about himself, but for our own good. Just like if you have children, you might have certain rules in place, not to hold them back because you want them to grow into adults who thrive and who are healthy and have experienced that freedom. And so faithfulness leads to freedom and not restriction. We also see what's happening throughout this book, and even in this passage in, in, in Esther chapter 9, that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect work. Mordecai, Esther especially, were very courageous, but they certainly weren't perfect. Again, we're, we're not sure. Perhaps her motivations was good, but again, we're not told. It seems kind of weird that she would ask for an additional day on top of Haman's ori- original edict for the Jews and Susa to continue fighting their enemies. 
Uh, they were not perfect. Again, the beginning of the book of Esther, you see Mordecai, who was fully assimilate, assimilated, and likely Esther as well, fully assimilated into Persian culture, likely doing certain things that were against the Old Testament laws of the Ten Commandments or various things that probably they were told not to do. But in order to fit in and to maybe climb the ranks of politics, Mordecai has probably most likely done things that dishonored God, and yet God still used him. And so whatever you have done, things that have happened to you, decisions that you might have made, you, not, you and I need to remember that God can and still desires to use us. He uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect work. And then lastly, and this is important, that our, ex- our circumstances don't dictate the promises of God. What's happened to us, what we're currently experiencing right now, do not change what God has promised what he's going to do, what he said he's going to do, what, what, he's, what he did through the cross, through Jesus, and what he's promised us. Now, again, we're not promised that everything's going to go the way that we want and that we're going to get all the things that we desire, but we are promised that God loves us, that God cares, um, that his plan and his will is perfect and good, even if we don't understand it now, even if we don't fully understand it in this life until we meet Jesus face to face. But our circumstances do not dictate his promises, that God is faithful he is good, he will do what he's promised, and no one, no kingdom, no king, no government, no forces, no evil, not even Satan himself can stop God from doing what he's going to do. And so God invites us into a relationship with him, he invites us into his kingdom, not because of us, because of him, and our circumstances don't dictate his promises in our life and in the life to come. That's Esther chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. We'll be back next time for the last session in the online Bible study in the book of Esther.